Hi everyone, I'm Bill Nordstrom and welcome to the program today. We're still in uh, northern Minnesota. We've escaped the, the heat of Las Vegas, come up here. And believe it or not, we got more heat. But anyhow, we're here for a, a, a convocation with uh, several Bible teachers and a group of people coming together with the principal uh, activity and for purpose to talk about the events that are going to be precede the return of Jesus Christ, and most particularly, those things that are going to come upon Israel, the covenant nation. These are, uh, these are hard things that we have to address, but nevertheless, we must address them. So I managed to get our last speaker, Brian Pertle. Brian is from Kansas City, Missouri, and he and I have gone back, oh, maybe 10 or 11 years, and we haven't seen much of each other over that period of time. So I'm kind of anxious to get caught up with what has been going on in his life. And then he's going to talk about Amos chapter 9. The subject was future siftings and the salvation of Israel. And it's right out of Amos chapter 9. Well, Brian, what's been going on in your life uh, for the past 10, 11 years? Yeah, well, it's good to be here with you, Bill. Um, for the last 10 or plus years, well, a great deal has transpired. We, we uh, spent some time as a family in Turkey, uh, just serving there, seeking to preach the gospel among the Muslims in Turkey and, and uh, helping to establish uh, a gospel work there. We have uh, had a couple of daughters get married. We have a gra our first grandbaby on the way as well, and we have also been a part of a church where I now serve as one of the elders called Bellicose Church in Kansas City. And uh, <clears throat> so I continue to work on the fire department, and uh, we've had a couple of daughters married off, and we stay occupied with seeking to shepherd the flock of God, and, and then uh, occasionally events like this where, where I have the joy of opening up the scriptures and fellowshipping with brothers and sisters regarding uh, the prophetic scriptures. So that's a summary of things. I remember those little girls on Facebook. I see those pictures that you used to post. They were little girls. Now they're married. Well, it sounds like you have a, a full plate, but I'll tell you, you, you offered a message this morning that was uh, pretty phenomenal things that uh, we don't always take from Amos chapter 9. There are a number of visions there. I think you said there are nine visions. But that last one is the, the word of the Lord. And that word is for the season in which we're, we're finding ourselves in these days. You said some hard words, but it's the truth from the word of God. Can you kind of summarize things for us a little bit so we know? To give a summary of, of Amos 9, my, my message was entitled The Future Sifting and Salvation of Israel, which brings up a mammoth worth of uh, questions and thoughts. But in short, Amos 9 <clears throat> is uh, the final chapter of, of the book of Amos. Uh, there are five visions in the book, and the fifth vision is uh, laid out in chapter 9. And in that vision... The Lord speaks about how 
the capitals of, of Jerusalem are to be struck, um, how destruction will come uh, upon the people Israel, both, both Judah and Israel, the northern kingdom, are warned that the Lord Almighty will be uh, bringing about destruction upon them and that there will be no hiding place from that destruction. Uh, he calls Israel the sinful kingdom in verse 8 and uh, decrees that he will destroy it from the surface of the ground. And, but uh, in verse 8, the promise of the everlasting covenant begins to, to shine through in the midst of an otherwise grim uh, prophetic book. Uh, there's very little in the whole of the book of Amos to give encouragement about the Lord's compassion and restoration, future restoration particularly, of uh, the people Israel. But uh, here in the second half of chapter 9, we begin to see, amid all of this uh, destruction that has been decreed, the promise of the everlasting covenant uh, taking shape in terms of how it is manifested, how it's to be manifested. And so uh, the Lord's eyes are upon the sinful kingdom in verse 8, and he says, I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among all the nations as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. And all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say, disaster shall not overtake or meet us. And what we have here is uh, the promise tucked within the warning of judgment that uh, there is an Israel within Israel. And so Israel as a people, nationally, corporately, globally, even outside of the land and diaspora, uh, largely constitute a sinful kingdom that has rejected its Messiah, that is still in the grips of uh, idolatry, that has still suppressed the truth of God and exchanged the glory of God for images that they have made. And, and they are very much like the rest of us Gentile nations uh, for these reasons. But because of the covenantal engagement with the Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, there is judgment and shaking that is to come. And in the midst of that judgment and shaking, the Lord has promised that he will save for himself a people. This people, Paul will later call all Israel in Romans 11, and Isaiah will call them the survivors of the wilderness, and Zechariah 13 will call them those that pass through the fire, one-third of the people that will pass through the fire and will come be brought forth as gold. And these are the pebbles in Amos 9, no pebble shall fall to the earth, and so Israel will be shaken as with a sieve, and out of that judgment, when all the sinners of my people, who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us, will perish, and this is a very sobering uh, reality to consider, and the promise within that warning is that he will save his people. All Israel shall be saved. Zechariah 13, a fountain will be opened for them. And chapter 12, they will look upon the one whom they have pierced and mourn. And there will be a national repentance. Uh, Isaiah, uh, Jeremiah 30 speaks about this. And onward to chapter 31, where the knowledge of the Lord will be given to the whole house of Israel. 
after that judgment has taken place. And so Amos words it this way, in that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. David in his covenant that God made with him was promised that he would never have his throne without a man. Jesus, of course, is content to be called the son of David, though he is David's Lord, because he also knows that he is the fulfillment, ultimately, of that covenant. And uh, the sure mercies of David are to be found now for Jewish and Gentile believers in Christ through the gospel. And one day, Israel, wayward Israel, those sheep without a shepherd, for whom we should weep, whom we should seek to bear witness of the gospel too, and whom we should love, and whom we should warn. One day they will look upon the one whom they have pierced. And this believe. is not for either or. This is for both, right? Yes. The, the salvation is for both, and that's yes. going to be a very unpopular subject on the front end, but necessary to be told. Yes. The, the Jew must be warned, particularly the religious Jew, but all Jews must be warned that their righteousness is as filthy rags just as are the Gentiles' righteous efforts. Uh, one of the reasons their, their Judaistic asceticism will not free them from the power of sin is because asceticism is itself a deed of the flesh. And seeking to establish a righteousness of their own, Paul said, they have not received the righteousness which comes from God through his Son, who is the Messiah of Israel. And so we must preach the gospel to the Jew. They do not have a separate covenant that will save them. There is only one name given under heaven by which men may be saved. That name is Jesus, Yeshua HaMashiach. And he's for the Jew and for the Gentile. There is no other salvation. And so we ought to, as the predominantly Gentile church, be burdened for the salvation of the Jewish people in our day, in our cities. And we ought also to be looking for and praying for and hoping for the day which is to come when they shall all look upon him whom they have pierced and mourn as a mother for her only son. And a fountain be opened up. There is a fountain filled with blood right. drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunge beneath that flood, lose all their guilty stains. And one day, following the sifting, the time of Jacob's trouble, following the final judgments which have been decreed, and the finishing of the mystery, when that takes place, they will say, there is a fountain. And it has been opened, not only for the Gentiles, but for us, through our Messiah. And we pray for that day. The, the latter part of that vision in uh, Amos chapter 9, God speaks. And he says some very, very intense things. These are kind of hard on the front end, but nevertheless, they're going to come about, aren't they? Yes. Yes. And this is something that the church uh, must have clarity on. The Apostle Paul asked the saints to pray for him that he would be able to proclaim the gospel clearly as he ought to proclaim it. And it's not only the apostolic preaching of the gospel that must be carried out clearly, but also the, the preaching of the whole prophetic testimony of Scripture. And we need clarity on this. We have too high of a view of man. 
and we have too low of a view of God and of His majesty. And there's much work yet to be done by pastors, by teachers, by other servants in the church that we might have uh, clarity as to what the prophets actually envisaged and expect, expected. And uh, to be able to, to teach our people for, for that gospel of the kingdom to be part and parcel of the whole of how we make disciples in the church uh, and what we expect in our prayers. Uh, that we're not just hoping for a better job, we're actually hoping and praying that Messiah will come and wrap this thing up to the praise of His glorious grace. And so we, we need clarity on that. And one of the issues that we need most clarity on and where we often, particularly in a nation like America, are lacking is the theology of God's judgments. And they are to be seen and known and even treasured perhaps most clearly by our being rightly acquainted with the prophetic scriptures. And uh, Israel serves as a witness nation to us for that reason. We would not have regarded God's judgments if we had not seen them in this elect nation. And so whether she is redeemed at the end of the age or when she is only uh, partly redeemed and is largely apostate, she still constitutes a witness nation to the Gentiles, reminding us that there is a God who spoke from the mount. And he has not vanished, and he is not uh, speaking ambiguously. He has spoken, and he is returning, and we will have to do with him. And so uh, God's dealings with Israel remind us that there are dealings with the Creator for all men. And in the gospel and in the revelation of the mystery in the New Testament of Christ, uh, th this clarity comes even more through the preaching, of course, of the apostles. And we should be imbibing the whole thing, the whole counsel of God. That, that speaks of something of a church that's going to look a lot different at the very end of the age than it does now. How do we get from here to there? He's going to return for a bride without spot or wrinkle. Um, we can look at that, we can read that, we can even believe it, but I'm not so sure many of us can see it. So how does a church prepare for such a time as this? Yeah, I would say the first thing is that we must have clarity about the gospel. Uh, we must return to Jesus Christ and Him crucified. This is the foundation of all our faith, of all our discipleship, of all our study, of the prophetic scriptures, of all our preaching, of all our witness and mission. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. What does this mean? Uh, what is our identity as disciples of Jesus? Is it as preachers or singers or theologians or uh, whatever our occupation might be? Or have we been adopted by the Father through the work of the Son? Is this our new identity? We belong to him. Uh, uh, we call him father because, not because he's the father of all. He is not. He is not the father of all. He's the creator of all. You could, you could bring a few verses in about his fatherhood in terms of creation, but predominantly when the scriptures speak about him as father, it's in reference to children who have been made righteous, right? And there are others who are called the children of Satan, and so there are those who do not have God as their father. That's Oprah Winfrey theology, that, that, that this God, whoever he is, is the father of all, and all have him as father. This is not true. We've been made sons because of the work of the, of the perfect and patterned son. The person and work of Christ is what makes us sons, makes us disciples. Do not rejoice that demons are subject to you in my name, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. 
And I think the church right now is languishing largely, uh, much of the church languishing largely because we're still itching for identity in other things, whether they be ministry or, or position or, or some other thing. We're not content to be sons and to, to, to be in the rest of the new covenant. That's number one. Number two, we must recover again um, a vision of God's holiness we must know God as he is and as he has revealed himself in the scriptures. We need to know the attributes of God. And uh, that, that, that's the second thing. We must know the gospel. We must know God. And the third thing, which I could say many others, but the third that I would say to put us on the right path toward the maturity of the saints is we must, we must have a recovery of conviction about the authority, the inerrancy, the sufficiency of the Bible. Because we have all these questions about God, about mission, about what the church should do in this hour, and we must hear from our Lord, we must hear from his prophets, we must hear from the apostles that he certainly sent. Now, there are many men today that we may think God certainly sent him. Some of them he has and some of them he hasn't, but we know that he sent Paul. We know that he sent Isaiah. We know that he sent Peter. Have we given these men adequate ear? And do we regard the scriptures be, as being our authority for all of life and godliness and the work of the ministry? We must see a recovery of that and tremble at that word, treasure that word, obey that word, wrestle with that word, study that word, meditate on that word, memorize that word, and submit all of our theology, all of our ministry practices, the way we carry ourselves to what God has revealed in his word. Jesus said the scriptures cannot be broken. And I'm afraid that many in modern ministry are willing uh, to treat the scriptures as if they are a broken, fragmented testimony and would trust themselves and their own personal revelations even more than they would Paul the Apostle or Peter or Jesus himself. We must return to the scriptures and to the whole counsel of God if we would grow up unto maturity. Of course, prayers interspersed with all this, pursuit of personal holiness, love of the brethren, the local church is central to all of this, but the, the scriptures teach us about all these things. And therefore, uh, we must return to God and his word. This is gonna, uh, going to come from a generation, uh, a prophetic and an apostolic generation, um, that uh, they may be three-year-olds right now. They may be 10-year-olds. How are we going to get to that point? Uh, I, I know houses of prayer, and I am a big believer in corporate intercession. These things beginning in the spirit corporately people crying out to God night and day in intercession and travail and supplication. And there, there are young people, there are young adults doing this in the earth today. But do you, you I'm, I'm sure you believe that God's raising up that generation for this time. Yes. Uh, well, I think it was Jonathan Edwards who says something like that. The Lord has not brought about any mighty work of recovery in his purposes, except that he first set his people to prayer. And uh, I, do, I do believe that most certainly. Uh, where I'm leery about uh, any kind of movement or expression of things is where it deviates from what I believe to be the vision of God for the church as laid forth in scripture. And so <clears throat> I'm excited for <clears throat> prayer movements and, and, and uh, expressions of prayer. All of this for me must tend to the preaching of the gospel, 
the planting and nurturing of local churches, the appointing of a plurality of qualified elders who are godly men who care for the flock of God, where the saints are in real fellowship with one another, and where they give themselves together to the apostles' teaching, to the breaking of bread, to fellowship, and to prayer. And this must take place in all of our cities and flourish and grow, and it must take place even to the uttermost parts of the earth, to the 7,000 people groups that remain unreached. And uh, I'm eager for that because I believe the scriptures have have spoken of these things, and and uh, that's what I pray for. When when Jesus said, "Pray then, the Lord of the harvest, worker, workers are few, to send forth workers into His harvest field," I think He meant a specific kind of worker, and I think their character, their theology, is expressed for us in the lives of the apostles in the New Testament. That's the kinds of men, kinds of servants we need yet again for the work of the Great Commission. Amen. Amen. By the sound of the noise in the room, I believe a new session is just about ready to start. I see people streaming in. So we're going we're gonna to wrap this up. I, I, I really thank you for joining us for this podcast. There are a lot of people out there wonder, you know, where we're going with all this. They're hearing uh, messages and they're, they've heard me talk about uh, the events that are going to precede the return of Christ. These are real events that are going to happen in time and space. But so many times the whole issue of Israel gets skipped over so easily. And that is really the central issue. And God's going to bring that about. He's going to bring about in due season in his time. Amen. Hallelujah. Great and mighty are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the Saints. Well, Brian, we thank you very much for joining us. And uh, just a, a heads up that we're up here in northern Minnesota, and we're here for a convocation, a, a conference, and determining uh, and learning from the Word of God from several speecher, uh, speakers what will precede the return of Christ and Israel's central role in that whole process. So, for Brian Pearl, I'm Bill Nordstrom. God bless each and every one of you, and Maranatha. <laughs>